The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. I'm Bruce McGregor. I'm Chris McGregor. And today we are joined by Philip Freeman. Uh, He is the Associate Professor and Quali Professor of Classics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and a visiting scholar at the Harvard Divinity School. Also uh, the author of three previous books to this one, but the one we're going to focus on today is called St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography. Philip, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning, thank you. Philip, I love the book. I think it's probably one of the best uh, renderings on the life of St. Patrick that I've ever seen. And I just think it's so important to have something that gives us, makes him a very real person as opposed to a lot of the stories and legends that you hear Old out lore. there. Mm-hmm. What, what brought you to uh, pursue the life of St. Patrick? Well, I heard about him uh, in graduate school, and I approached it uh, at the start just as a, as a source for history. I'm mostly an ancient historian who deals with uh, ancient and medieval history. But, but once I got into uh, the letters of Patrick, uh, Patrick, these actual two short Latin letters uh, that he wrote, I was just fascinated by this man's life. Uh, I think whatever religious background you come from, uh, you can't help but be intrigued by this man. I, I think that's what you did so well in the book, is that you actually took the the letters that were written by Patrick himself, the letters to, a uh, letter to the soldiers of, help me with the... Caroticus. Caroticus, thank you. And um, also St. Patrick's Confession. And from that, you were really able to bring to life uh, his experience, but you also used your background in history to give us a sense of place and time as well. Yes, uh, Patrick has these two wonderful letters, which are, are one of the very few things that survive from uh, uh, Ireland or Britain at this time, uh, and they're they're great. Uh, but you do have to fill in a bit, uh, a bit of the missing pieces as best you can. Part of it is just understanding what was happening in the world and the culture of the area too. Uh, I think sometimes we we look back on ancient Ireland, and I, I'm not sure what folks are thinking was occurring back then. I think they think of a land of druids and and uh, superstitions, but it really was an area that was influenced by the Roman world, wasn't it? It was. Uh, the Romans had been uh, having contact with Ireland for many years. We find Roman coins and Roman imports uh, to Ireland, stretching back really to the first century B.C. But Ireland was unique uh, because it was one of those few parts of Europe it was never actually conquered by the Romans, so it was outside of the Roman Empire. And England, where Patrick would have been born and and uh, had his, what, first 15 years there? Yeah. That was an area that was dominated by the Romans, but the power had been waning at this time. This would, would have been around, what, the late 300s, the 4th century? Right. Uh, best guess is that Patrick was born sometime, say, in the 390s which is right at the end of the uh, Roman Empire and uh, Roman influence in Britain. Mm -hmm. Uh, The legions withdrew from Britain just a few years later. So this is a real time uh, of transition and turmoil in Britain for Patrick and his family and everybody else. 
Because what happened is by the Romans pulling out, it left essentially Britain unguarded. Yes, indeed. And uh, it wasn't too long until the Anglo-Saxons and the Jutes and a few other uh, Germanic uh, barbarian pagan tribes came pouring in uh, from the east. Uh, But for uh, at least a few years there, when Patrick was a young man, uh, they were pretty, uh, the Britons were pretty much just on their own. And that, you know, that vulnerability um, was, well, essentially was very dangerous because Ireland at the time, their farms were set up where they were actually maintained or worked on by the slaves that they would capture by raiding Britain. Right. There was a real industry going on in Ireland to uh, raid Britain and to take captives back to Ireland. They had these professional slave raiders that did this. It's amazing. I, I, I didn't appreciate until I read in your book the fact that as a slave, it was the, the best slave to grab would be a woman. Yeah. Because they could do the work, but they could also have children, and you could dominate them a little bit more easily. Oh, absolutely. When you, when you look around the whole classical world and, and ancient history, most of the time, the, the people that, uh, were, that, the, uh, that the Romans and others liked to have as slaves and capture as slaves were women and children. Uh, sometimes they wanted men if they had particularly hard or dirty jobs to do. But uh, women were really, again and again, the most popular. And this was certainly true uh, in Ireland and Britain at the time as well. And I think you had pointed out that, again, you really didn't want the adult male because he was just too difficult to deal with. They were. Uh, but Patrick was just perfect. He was about 15 years old. So he was strong enough to do uh, the, the menial tasks of farm life. And yet he was still young enough to be afraid and, and to be dominated. And so he was grabbed, and he ended up staying uh, about six years as a slave on a farm in Ireland. Yes, he did. He was uh, captured uh, from his villa in Roman Britain, brought across the Irish Sea, and sold uh, probably to a farmer somewhere up in the northwestern part of Ireland, maybe uh, Sligo or or that area. Uh, And he was there for six years under some very harsh circumstances. He... uh, had an experience. This was a real transformative time. The suffering in slavery really transformed him, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. Patrick was raised in a Christian home. His father was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. But as he himself says in his letters, he really didn't care anything about religion as a young man. He, he was an atheist, he says, mm-hmm. uh, when he uh, was captured. So he went over to Ireland and was uh, forced into this utterly foreign lifestyle he had been a young man of the nobility. He was waited on. He had slaves of his own. Now, all of a sudden, he was a slave with absolutely no rights uh, in, uh, on a hillside in Ireland taking care of sheep. And he had just sunk to the very bottom uh, of life. Uh, and when this happened to him, he turned to the one hope that he still had, and that was his, uh, his Christian heritage, uh, his, his, his faith in God that he had been taught as a young boy. What was the life like for someone who lived in Ireland who may not have been a slave? I mean, what, what was the predominant religion or um, and government? What was happening there? Well, Ireland at about this time in the, in the 5th century A.D. was ruled over by uh, tribes, uh, and each of these tribes had a king, and there may have been a hundred or more of, of these tribes. So when we talk about a king, 
we can't think of somebody like King Arthur. Right. We have to think more of like a village chieftain. Uh, and, and each of these tribes was autonomous, uh, and it was um, you couldn't just pick up and go from one tribe to another. That was a very dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had all of these tribes. Uh, it was very much an agricultural society where uh, the measure of a man was uh, how many cows he had. Uh, and you had sheep, and you had horses, you had pigs. Um, but as, as far as religion, there were Druids in Ireland. We, we hear about Druids in the Celtic world all over Europe from mm-hmm. to, to France. But, but the, the religion of Ireland at this time was uh, a world full of different gods, uh, of all sorts of different aspects uh, of life. It was a polytheistic society, just like Greece and Rome were. And it's important to understand uh, what that society was like, because ultimately Patrick would have a very um, profound effect on it. Oh, absolutely. Patrick was, uh, was going to change Ireland forever. All right, we're talking with Philip Freeman, the author of St. Patrick of Ireland, A Biography. Philip, as we're exploring this, this life of Patrick, and he's in slavery in Ireland serving on this farm, uh, it, it's amazing to me that, you know, he really, he had to hold on to the one anchor that his parents gave him, and that was his Christian faith. And he ended up having an experience, uh, a mystical experience, but in his dreams. He did. Uh, absolutely. Well, at the end of the six years of being a slave, uh, Patrick had definitely had a conversion experience, and he talks about praying a hundred times during the day, and then again a hundred times at night, until finally at one point he had a dream. Uh, and in this dream, he heard God saying to him, it's time for you to go, your ship is ready. And Patrick woke up and he thought, you know, oh my goodness, this, you know, I, I must have been imagining something. So the next night he has another dream. And it says pretty much the same thing, and even tells him exactly where he has to go in Ireland to catch this ship to get back to Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, after that second vision, he uh, he agrees that this is a, a commission from God, uh, and he uh, escapes from his master and sets off across Ireland. And you point out in the book, too, that for Patrick, this he was in the wrong part of Ireland to easily escape. He was. Uh, the best guess is... Uh, that he was up somewhere in the in the the coldest and wettest part of Ireland, even today, up near Sligo in County Mayo area, uh, and he had to travel. He says in his letter, two hundred Roman miles, which is about one hundred and eighty modern miles. Wow! And Ireland's not that big, so that meant he had to cross the whole island, and so he probably went down to one of the harbors, maybe uh, Waterford or Cork, uh, on the southern coast. And uh, it's, it was a, a very, very difficult journey uh, for him to do. He, he was a runaway slave. Uh, if he was captured, uh, he would probably have been killed. So he had to move at night. Uh, he couldn't make his presence known. He couldn't rely on, on help from anybody. There was no underground railroad mm-hmm. for, uh, for uh, Irish slaves. Uh, so he was in great danger uh, until uh, he finally, he says, he finally reached this harbor uh, in, in the southern part of Ireland, where he saw the ship that he had uh, had in his vision. Wow. And the thing is, his return home really was a, a miracle, especially for those around him, because, again, as you point out, no one returned from slavery in Ireland. That's right. 
right. Uh, Patrick, I mean, just one of the many reasons that, that Patrick's letters are so fascinating is that we don't have anything else like this. Uh, nobody escaped from slavery. Uh, and for anybody to escape from slavery among the Irish and make it home, that was just uh, incredible. So when Patrick finally walked through the gates uh, of his uh, family villa six years after he had been kidnapped, uh, they just couldn't believe it, that, that, that here he was. They were overjoyed. It's compelling, too, that when you talk about how once he made the decision to go back to Ireland, that would have been very profound for his parents as well, because now they have him back, and he's made a decision that is even contrary to what uh, would have been expected of a son in Britain. Oh, absolutely, because in his letters, Patrick never talks about any brothers or sisters. So uh, it may well be that he was an only child. Uh, his parents were growing older. He miraculously returns. Uh, so they are thrilled, and of course they naturally expect him to spend the rest of his life there and take over the farm uh, and take over uh, a certain role in government. But Patrick, uh, because of another series of dreams, decides that he is has been called to go back to Ireland, and his, and his parents are just horribly upset about this. If it were my kid, I'd probably tie him up and put him down there. <laughs> like, what, you're nuts? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the thing is that the Christianity, too, and this is, I keep going back to why I love St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography by uh, Philip Freeman, because there's this this life is so rich, and you really give us a sense of what was happening at the time. And part of that is what was happening with Christianity. Oh, absolutely. Christianity was still a fairly young religion uh, at this point. Uh, it had uh, been accepted just in the previous century as the uh, official religion of Rome. And yet, uh, especially in Western Europe, uh, in Britain, for example, Christianity was a minority uh, religion. There were plenty of, of worshippers of the old gods uh, still around. Mm -hmm. And even within Christianity, there was turmoil. There were uh, different uh, camps and different heresies and different arguments going on about all sorts of different theological issues. Uh, so uh, it, it's not like it was a, a nice, settled uh, religion uh, at all. There were lots of, lots of turmoil. And there was a man named Pelagius who was really making, who was very well known in Britain at the time, and who was teaching a, a form of Christianity that could have really corrupted what St. Patrick might have done. Yes, uh, Pelagius, uh, uh, of course, we think of him today as a heretic. He, the, the type of Christianity that he preaches is very complicated, but he was a Briton, uh, and he believed that uh, it was at least theoretically possible for a, a person to achieve salvation uh, without uh, the uh, the direct intervention of God, that the, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, at least theoretically, wasn't absolutely necessary for everybody. Wow. And of course, uh, people uh, like St. Augustine and, and St. Jerome jumped all over him mm -hmm. uh, because they said, you know, this is just not right, that, that no one uh, is righteous enough to achieve heaven without uh, the intervention of God. Right. But Patrick was trained under Bishop Germanus. Well, it's, that's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the stories we have uh, later on is, is that he was trained under uh, Bishop Germanus in uh, what's now uh, France. But in his letters, he never actually says how he got trained. So mm. it may well be that he did uh, go to Germanus, or it could have been he joined one of the, uh, the, 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 the circles around one of the bishops in Britain. And there were several uh, there at that point. 
and he could have gotten training. Uh, he says he became a deacon, uh, and then finally he was ordained uh, as a priest and ultimately uh, as a bishop. You talk about it as the missing years. Yeah. Because it is frustrating. It, what is it, 25 years from the period where he returns to the period where he goes uh, to back to Ireland. Yes, it, it, it certainly could have been that long where, you know, again, uh, we're not really sure. Uh, and so I do call that chapter the missing years, and that's why it's so much fun for uh, a professor. You can just fill in and, and, mm-hmm. and use uh, all of the, the insights that you can uh, try to come up with. What was his return like? What would he have encountered? Well, when Patrick went back uh, to Ireland, it would not have really been a warm welcome uh, for him at all. Mm-hmm. He was still an escaped slave. Uh, he was theoretically uh, a criminal. But he, he went back, and uh, since Ireland was divided into uh, uh, you know, at least 100 different autonomous, quarreling, warring tribes, he had to proceed very carefully. Uh, there were Christians in um, Ireland before Patrick got there. Uh, this is you know, one of the myths about uh, Patrick is that he introduced Christianity to Ireland. He right. did. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some there before. So he went back, and uh, the Christians who were there, uh, many of them were slaves who had been kidnapped uh, from Britain. So Patrick went back and he tried uh, to minister to, uh, the, the, and mostly most of the slaves were women. So he tried to minister to them, and yet he also tried to introduce Christianity to uh, the pagan Irish as best he could, but it was a really difficult situation because the uh, the, the, the religious figures there, the Druids, uh, were certainly not welcoming uh, of this new religion at all. Where do you suppose the stories of driving out the snakes and the uh, entering into the the contest to the deaths with with the Druids came from? Oh, those are great stories. Uh, unfortunately, they're not true. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but you know, a lot of stories like this grow up around saints, and actually they're, they, they're very uh, well-meaning stories. Mm-hmm. The, the story about Patrick and the snakes, for example, there were never any snakes in Ireland. Uh, right. You can go to the National History Museum in Dublin, and they don't have any snake skeletons there. Um, but the, but the, the, the way it came about probably was that snakes uh, always represented evil. Uh, you know, the story of the, the, the Garden of Eden, they certainly do. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the snake story is probably uh, symbolic of Patrick driving evil out of Ireland and bringing Christianity and bringing light. And the same thing with the, the battles with the Druids. Uh, those are drawn uh, heavily on the, the Old Testament prophet stories, uh, where the prophets are, are, are battling the evil priests of Baal, uh, and, and Patrick's battles with the Druids are very much like that. I really doubt that that happened. Uh, Pat, there are absolutely no miracles that Patrick talks about in his own letters, aside from his visions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but um, but I think Patrick probably converted uh, many Irish to Christianity, not by miracles at all, but by a lot of hard work. And that's what's so, I, I think, which makes the story more compelling, is that it was just in his perseverance and the fact that he would go back to a land that caused him so much suffering to try to help the people, that is worthy of the exaltation that we give him anyway in in his very real life. Oh, absolutely. The The real story of Patrick is so much more interesting uh, than the myth. Uh, the, the reality of this man who worked for decades in Ireland and as he says, he suffered constant uh, persecutions and problems and threats. He was kidnapped at least once. He was attacked again and again. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, even as an old man, and he's writing both of these letters as an old man, he says he still expects at any time uh, to, to be killed uh, by somebody. He would not be surprised. So he worked uh, for many, many years in a very dangerous situation, and yet he did persevere. Why would he write that letter to the soldiers of Krat- I'm not. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> what happened was, after Patrick had been in Ireland for a number of years, uh, he was having some success uh, in converting people to Christianity. Uh, and at, the, at this time, this is after the Romans have withdrawn from Britain. So uh, in Britain, uh, the, the, the people who are actually ruling it at this point are, are what we call tyrants. They're like petty kings. And one of these petty kings sends a slave raid from Britain to Ireland. Uh, and uh, he kidnaps some of Patrick's recent converts. Uh, he, oh. This uh, king and his men uh, kill some of them, but they, they kidnap especially the women. Uh, and they bring them back to Britain. So Patrick writes this letter, uh, this uh, just marvelously angry, furious letter uh, at Caroticus uh, and his men, uh, saying that they are worse than barbarians. They, they have kidnapped and enslaved and killed their fellow Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really a letter of excommunication uh, and a lot of other things uh, rolled into one. It's um, very uh, telling to his ministry to women. I think by going to the Daughters of Ireland and converting them to Christianity, he would ultimately touch their children through the mothers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the history of early Christianity is one in which women tend to be more receptive to Christianity than the men. Uh, so this was a, a very smart move on Patrick's part. Uh, and as you say, uh, if you could uh, bring the women to Christianity, very likely the children would follow, and perhaps ultimately the husband uh, as well. A very wise choice. In, uh, uh, wouldn't you say, Bruce? <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. The uh, Another thing that you mentioned towards the end, when Patrick died, we really don't know the time of his death, do we? We really don't. There are some people that say uh, it was in the 460s. Some people say in the 490s. We're really not sure. And in March 17th, uh, the traditional date of his death, uh, it may well be that Patrick died on that day. But, you know, we're not really certain. And he had requested that, that he be buried in an unmarked grave. Yes, uh, one of the stories about Patrick is that, that he not be uh, uh, remembered, that there not be any memorial set up for him. He was really a very, truly a very humble man. Uh, and, uh, and, and even after he died, for a number of years, hardly anybody remembered him. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't uh, until the 600s that, that the, uh, the, a real cult And you, and you look at some of his prayers that he wrote, some of the, the writings from the, the letters, and, um, just beautiful, just always surrounding himself with Christ, putting Christ on everything he does. Oh, absolutely. And there's a, there's this, a beautiful prayer called the Breastplate, uh, breastplate of Patrick, mm-hmm. which actually probably wasn't written by Patrick, but it, it, it could have been. Uh, and it's just a gorgeous uh, 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 Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, below me, above me, uh, etc., etc. It's, it's a beautiful prayer. How else would you be able to accomplish the things that Patrick did in his lifetime if you didn't have that type of uh, mantle? Oh, absolutely. What would you say, uh, Philip, would be the the things that we should know about Patrick beyond the legends? 
that I mean, how would you and you and you document it so well in this wonderful book? But how could you distill it down for the average show? Just that uh, Patrick is a lot more uh, than the stories that most people have heard. He was a real man, uh, and that the the amazing things he did and his perseverance in his life are much more interesting than all the myths that have grown up around him. Absolutely, and I I I just still don't know what he would think about all that green beer and everything. <laughs> He would probably say, everybody go inside and go to church instead. That's right. That's right. Donate <laughs> yes. the money you are going to spend on your beer somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, we want to thank you so much for spending time with uh, us and our audience today. Uh, Philip Freeman, author of the book, St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography. Now, are you, I have some other projects that are coming out, because if, if there are, it has to be wonderful, because this book is such a lively read. Yeah. Well, I just had a book uh, come out called The Philosopher and the Druids, which is a narrative history of the ancient Celts. Oh, really? But he's just interested in the Celts in general. Uh, and I'm working on a biography of Julius Caesar, which should be out in a couple of years. I hope you'll come back to discuss those with us as well. I would love to. All right. And uh, keep in mind, everyone, as we get ready to celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day, one of the quotes from Philip's book is, The Holy Spirit says, even unsophisticated people were created by God. There we go. (laughs) go. (laughs) Philip, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure.